A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of What Most People Think. How have you been doing? You've been having another exciting week <sighs> in lockdown. In lockdown. You know what I did last night? I went to Tesco's, right? A late night. I just decided I needed some antihistamines. That's already the third most exciting thing that's happened in this lockdown is that I realised I needed antihistamines. And then I went out, I went to Tesco's. I just stayed there. I just stayed there half an hour in Tesco's. Just walked around, bought... <laughs> This is so sad, isn't it? It's what these fucking lockdowns have done to us. I bought batteries. Even my wife, when I bought them back, she was like, you bought batteries? That's not the kind of level of household management that I usually enter into, but um, that's where we're at, yeah. And we were, as I speak, we were waiting the announcement of the uh, which tier we're going to be in. That's exciting, isn't it? If you're in tier one, you'll be able to... Uh, well, you'll be able to have a pint without without ordering a pasty that you don't want. And we we, we apparently we should celebrate this like uh, like we won ten grand on a fucking scratch card. Um, you know what they should do with the, the um, with the reveal of the tears? They should do it like one of those gender reveal parties. You you know what those are? You know the ones where they they you know do a couple of pregnant and then they they burst a balloon. If it's pink, it's a girl, and blue is a boy. I think that they should do one where pink is tier one. Blue is tier two, and then if it just explodes and covers everyone around in human shit, then that is uh, <laughs> that is tier three. But yeah, we got we've got some agreement over Christmas. The the politicians have got together and told us uh, who we can hug and, and the period within which we can hug them for. And uh, none none of this is is weird or, or worrying. This is what happens: how quickly people can forget what it was like to have freedom. Is we're sitting here thinking that somehow being in tier one is a win. I just got, I've gone straight into it this week, apologies for that, but I've seen a lot of people out there going, uh, well, lockdown, you know, we, we, we ended lockdown in the summer. Did we? Did we? This is what we've got to think now, is that a partial lifting of some aspects of lockdown were an end to lockdown. They weren't. I ain't been able to go swimming. Do you know what I mean? I ain't been able to go to a sports event. Uh, just a quick welcome to uh, the new patrons. There was a bit of slow week in terms of the new Patreon thing. Uh, Chris Kimpton, who upgraded his uh, pledge. Um, the, basically, just if you don't know, this podcast has a Patreon, uh, which is to keep it weekly and ad-free. And uh, since I've done that, I've had a, a number of uh, approaches from advertisers and platforms that, you know, great, you know, I'm, I'm flattered to be approached and it'd be great to have that money, but yeah, there is just a part of me. This is just my one thing in life, you know, just me sitting in my little shed. It, it's free. It's free from lawyers, it's free from an edit, it's free from, I don't know, people of Silic Bang asking if I'm going to discuss Black Lives Matter this week, right? Because <laughs> they want to, you know, they're always talking about getting things whiter. If I mention Black Lives Matter, it might not be a great crossover for them. So that's the idea if you want to be involved. There's loads of benefits, right? Uh, just this, this Thursday of this week, the 26th of November, maybe this is why Chris Kimpton upgraded his pledges because I'm doing a new material gig. So that's just like a Zoom gig. I have a nice background, you know, microphone. It's kind of like a gig, Online and that is free to uh, free to top tier patrons, and then that is going to get uploaded 
to the Patreon account for the £5 and the £3 patrons to watch uh, at their leisure. Um, there I'll be doing articles as well. Uh, there'll be another article probably on Monday of next week. And I have a cuss count as well on this podcast, which is, well, it started out life, I was swearing a lot and a few people complained about it. And then a few people complained that the swearing went down. So we've all agreed just to monitor this thing. And I've got to say, I'm surprised by the numbers. It's David Domain that puts it together for me. He's also a VIP patron. And he, well, these numbers numbers are low. I mean, it was quite a long podcast for a solo podcast last week. It's 52 minutes. And the numbers were as as follows. Sorry, it sounds like I was going to do final score there. Bollocks three, clusterfuck one. Fuck eight. Fucking 22. Pissing one. Pricks, one. And shit, seven. Shittest, one. <laughs> so that's low. That's quite a low number of fuckings. Fuckings is the kind of word that I use to grease the cogs of comedy to get to my punchline. Um, so maybe there weren't that many punchlines. Uh, but that works out as 0.86 a minute. Yeah, that's, that's okay. That's okay. It's below below one. Anything above one is uh, is going along a fair old lick. You know, I don't necessarily want to be going along like Chris Gale in the T20, but... Um, this week we do have a guest. Uh, I'm going to talk about the spending review first because I think it'd be good to have a quick catch up on the politics and I'll do that after this section. But then after that we've got Ella Whelan. Ella Whelan is a really interesting journalist. She talks about feminism, she talks about uh, women's rights, but she she is not, you know, she often finds herself going against the kind of me too thinking or against the the kind of liberal feminist mainstream media and she she's just got really interesting takes she she definitely has her own mind so we had, we had a great chat and that'll be coming up uh, after we talk about the spender review um this week uh, the thank you and a fuck you uh the thank you goes to um tesco yeah as i said earlier that that wonderful that wonderful half hour i spent just walking around the tesco the lovely staff there it was just like you know when i came back like my wife said to me, you, you got a spring in your step. I said, yeah, because I've been to Tesco's. I've been to Tesco's. You know what, babe? What made it extra interesting was uh, they've moved some of the stuff around. <laughs> What's become of me this year, 2020? Thou hast reduced me to dust. Um, and the fuck you. The fuck you is for the people that left on my uh, Oxford vaccine joke. So you've seen, right, we've got all these vaccines coming out now. We had the Pfizer one, we had the Moderna one, and then the Oxford one come out. And initially they were saying it's 70% effective. And I said on Twitter, well, you know, that's kind of like when your mum comes home with biscuits but says they're just as good as McVitie's, even though they're like cheap as shit, right? It's just, just a joke. My God, the amount of people that are defensive about vaccines, I did not realise, right? You People calling me ignorant. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant. That's That kind of uh, is, is built into this, this offer. And um, one person who is also a writer, or says that they're a comedy writer, said that it was too soon, maybe. If you, if you write topical jokes, the whole point is being soon. For fuck's sake. Too soon? No. Okay. That's the point of topical. That's the very point of topical. So yeah, in the end, I ended up uh, issuing an apology. I said, I'm very sorry for my insensitive use of a biscuit analogy. I said that I'd like to apologise to the people uh, who devise, who devised the Oxford vaccine, uh, who were no doubt devastated by this joke, and I'd also like to apologise to the budget biscuit industry and the hard work that they continue to do.
Okay, uh, I'm recording this Thursday. So yesterday and Wednesday was the spending review. So I thought I'd just have a quick chat about that. I mean, first up, what a tame word for the absolute horror show that that was. Spending review. Don't know, spending, this was much bigger than a spending review. This was like... Spending reviews when you sit there with your missus and you look at, oh, we're spending a bit of money on uh, streaming services. Should we, should we just cancel Spotify? That's what that is. Spending review. This was like, Jesus Christ, that you, you went out on the first night of stag do, did a thousand euros, and you've woke up with a fucking STD and you've been mugged and you have a scar on your back. <laughs> Jesus Christ. An 11.5% contraction in GDP in one year. It's the second worst in Europe, right? Spain are the worst. Why are we always near the worst? Why have we always got to be near the worst on some stuff? You know, it's the same with the credit crunch, wasn't it? Britain, you know, uh, the effects of the credit crunch have been felt most harshly by Britain who were left excessively exposed by Labour spending. Now, we're excessively exposed by what? What is it? The fact that the Tories keep giving these kind <laughs> their mates rates deals to their pals from Oxford? What is it? Did we lock down harder than everybody else? What? Why? Why? Why are we so bad? I know, I know that mortality hasn't been as bad in the second wave in this country. That's why, that's why you won't hear the lefties talk about it, right? Remember uh, in the first wave, it was all, look, we're the worst. We're, look at this graph. Look at this graph. Britain bad. Britain bad graph. They love a Britain bad graph, right? Um, but yeah, in the second wave, we, we are, you know, we're still in the top 10. Don't get me wrong. We're still uh, competing for Champions League places. But, um, but you look at the increase in spending as well. We, I think Canada... He's the country of like Western developed nations that's increased their spending the most. We're second though, just hanging in there second. Always, always the bridesmaid in terms of shit that you <laughs> like awards that you don't want to get. I, I think we've got to really push it harder. Let's be whatever the next global clusterfuck is. Let's be the absolute worst. I'm sick of, I'm sick of these runners up medals. God, this all seems to have happened so quickly, doesn't it? It all seems like, it feels like someone who just sat down in Vegas, right? And you just had like, I've got $200 there. I'm just going to enjoy a little, a little flutter. And then uh, I will walk away at the correct time. And then cut to an hour later, we've borrowed money off a mafia loan shark. We, we, we haven't got a shirt. We're just crying like a degenerate gambler. We're ringing our daughter to tell her that she's going to be working for, <laughs> for the mob now. Because you sold her into indentured labour. Just because, well, things got away from you. I, I don't know what happened. I just... Just, I just started spending, and then, and before I knew it, uh, Jimmy the bastard was uh, cutting off one of my fingers. I mean, what? What can you say? It's mental. What's happened to our numbers over this year? I mean, there's the public sector pay freeze, right, which include excludes front frontline workers like the NHS. And I know that every single person in the NHS, every single nurse and doctor, all of them work well. The whole, you know, they worked hard the whole time. I mean, you listen to this, you know the ones that didn't, right? There must have been a few where your ward was surprisingly quiet, so you had a bit of chance to make your little uh, Mamma Mia TikTok videos. Look, good luck to you. I know you do a hard job, but just remember in a few months when we're all eating fucking our guinea pigs, that just buy us around, yeah? Buy us around, because it's certainly... I wish, I wish I'd had a pay freeze this year. I wish I could... <laughs> I'll take a pay freeze from last year for the next... Three years, right? And you think to yourself, obviously online, on the lefty world of social media, it's all like, well, this is an attack. This is an attack on public sector. Well, they had the cheek to stand out there and clap, and now they are ripping away the money. Well, okay, first things first, I don't think the public are going to see exactly like this. You know, when they poll as to how the public feel about a public sector pay freeze, I think that there might be a bit of a majority in favour of it. Now, part of it will depend on how the question is posed, of course, right? 
how the question is posed. Because if they, you know the way that YouGov poses these questions, if they say like, do you think that the public sector should face their fair share of the burden in paying down the debt accrued through lockdowns? People go, well, yeah, I think that would be a clear majority. Or, and this is why they might word it, do you think our heroic NHS should be punished for trying to save us? And then we go, well, no, I don't think that should happen. Look, I'm just saying, if you work in a job where there's literally no chance of you getting made redundant or the sack, then you've done okay. I've got to be honest, man, that's stability. You're pub whatever, you're a civil servant, you're a teacher, you know, I'm not saying these jobs are easy. Well, a couple of them. Look, if you're teaching reception class, come on, what is it? If you've a bit of fucking glitter in the, in the sandpit, civil servants, civil servants, let's not talk about them. People that work for local council getting paid six figures, you know, because they're director of, of refuse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is what happens is, is, is economic hardships always turn us against each other. I'm going, I'm going for civil, I'm going for local council figures. Let's talk about those fucking... Uh, Let's talk about those oligarchs. <clears throat> and then the other thing that happened was that the, the foreign aid pledge, which was set at 0.7 of gross national income, um, that was changed to 0.5%. Now, first up, it was a manifesto pledge, right? I'm not really personally a fan of governments changing those. You know, because circumstantially, when the government won the election, and this is going to be a feature, that the things that the Tories promised in the 2019 election were obviously before the worst global pandemic since the Spanish flu, Right? Um, so maybe things will change, but they will certainly get held their feet to the fire for the fact that they are changing. And I, again, I think that this might play out quite well. I think a lot of people in the public would, wouldn't have known that that was the level at which we were spending. And, and by the way, 0.5 still puts us up in terms of some of the highest contributors in developed economies. But, you know, we are still reducing it. We need to be, think about this. But I, I think the, the public will go, what? We're giving, we're giving fucking money to China. We are still giving money to China, by the way. I think it was like 200 million. Just giving China money. You know, that is kind of like, it's kind of like you find it, you know, you've got one of your rich middle class friends, you find out they still get pocket money when they're 26. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or their parents, uh, or their parents pay their rent or their mortgage. You go, eh, maybe it's, maybe it's time to stop the old per diems, Hugo. So Rishi got up and delivered his terrible news, but he delivered it quite well, frankly, standard, uh, standard Rishi. And then Annalise Dodds got up. Now, you might know, not know who Annalise Dodds is. and you won't, There's no shame in that, because I don't, I don't think anyone does. She's the Labour shadow chancellor, little, little Scottish woman. She got up and, um, and she just, just gave this a week. She's got a tiny little voice. It just sounded it so quiet. It needed a bit, of, dare I say it, I'm not a fan of the man, but it needed like a John McDonnell clunking fist. But she got up and she was like... Um, all right, I've just got to see it at a transfer. But, uh... And by the way, I'm not speaking, like, I haven't turned it down. I'm, I'm trying to recreate the low volume that she was operating at. I've, I've looked into these figures and I'll tell you something. She sounded a bit like, you know Rob Brydon when he does that man down a well voice? That it just sounds weirdly distant? She lands, I mean, she just didn't land any punches. You know, she lands punches like I land university gigs. And look, and there, there's a price. That's what we're all realising. There is a price for two lockdowns, you know, where the economy shut down largely. There's a price to pay for it. Now, I remember that early on, early on in this, you know, there are a few people that were brave enough to ask about, is the, is the cure worse than the disease? You know, is, is, is what we're spending justifiable? You know, some people even went as far as breaking it down to, uh, you know, what it costs to save a life. And, and that was seen as crass and, and grotesque. But, but now... We look down the line and we look at the effects that this will have for us and our kids. And what, was it crass or gross to ask those questions? Because this is gonna this is gonna resonate 
for for a long time and and this is the problem at the moment with politicians all around the world is that there's this presentism isn't there they can only deal what's in their inbox today you know basically basically i think what happened the single biggest psychological thing that drove the actions of this country was that photo and those images in italy of people not being able to be treated in beds i mean that's going to be a hard thing to do to defend, you know, in future where your kids going, Daddy, Daddy, why are we living in a, a Mad Max-style dystopia? Go, well, uh, there was this news report from a place called Lombardy, and, uh, yeah, I just, I don't want to be sitting on a fucking bed in a corridor, son. You stop whining about it, and you go and catch some more wild dog for us to eat. Anyway, listen, right, let's get into it now. Uh, a chat with the well-known journalist, the fantastic Ella Wheeler. Now making her first appearance on what most people think is Ella Wheeler. Welcome to the show, Ella. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? You're right. You're, you're sitting in front of obviously the listeners. This is a terrible place to start because they won't be able to see it. But you're sitting in front of a very white background there. You're not going for the the book <laughs> thing that a lot of people have been doing in lockdown. No, I'm actually in, I'm actually in the brim cupboard of our office because that's where I get the best sound. And I'm also sick of having people comment on what edition I've got of what book when I go on. Yeah, you know, it's strange that if ever you put up a photo of anything online, if you do a screenshot, people will never look at the thing you want them to look at. They'll go, oh, you want to charge your phone there, mate? Yeah. <laughs> they seem to sort of want some, some sort of bonus points for, for observing basic peripheral features. Um, just sort of explain to us, I mean, particularly in, in, the, in the sort of sphere of gender equality, your, your, your sort of general approach um, to that subject, how you come at feminism and, and issues like that. Well, so the book I wrote, What Women Want, fun freedom and an end to feminism no one ever says the subheading or at least they don't on air because they just <laughs> think the listeners can't handle it yeah. was a criticism a quite a harsh criticism of contemporary feminism uh victim fem- victim middle class feminism i think i called it at the time it was around 2016 before the me too movement um and an argument for a much stronger much more freedom orientated argument for women's liberty so uh I actually, it's interesting to use the word equality. Um, I'm not that interested in gender equality uh, because we can all be equal on rather rubbish levels. We yeah. can all be at the same point and still be living a pretty rubbish life. Um, I'm more interested in freedom. So uh, I, I argue for women's freedom, which is different, I think, to what can often be quite mealy mouth discussions about women's equality. So is there an example of what you think a freedom that is important for women that maybe gets under sort of is underexplored in mainstream media? Well, if we're talking about what's in the news at the moment, I mean, the whole uh, fury over the potentiality of misogyny being a hate crime is really an interesting one. Um, So no one really sensible thinks it's a great thing to be nasty to women because they're women. Um, although people forget that misogyny means, you know, a violent hatred of women. It doesn't just mean wolf whistling or things like that. Yeah. But the argument to make it a hate crime is based on the fact that women is based on the political idea that women need a specific kind of protection in the same way that other hate crimes work, you know, that black people need a specific kind of protection mm-hmm. or whatever the identity is. And so what I would say is, while there's nothing great about wolf whistling or hating women, misogyny isn't anything to be supported, what's more damaging is the idea that the state would intervene to protect women. So what are you, what, how does that play out 
Are there policemen mm. walking behind women waiting for someone to make a comment and intervene? Um, this is a really damaging statement on women's ability to be as rough and tough and strong enough as men. So it's it's kind of the, I guess what I've tried to do is get people to think about what these paternalistic policies actually mean in practice. And if you look at the history of uh, women's liberation movements, more often than not, whether it's you know pushing back against curfews uh, in the 60s and 70s, whether it's uh, challenging the kind of Victorian notion of needing a chaperone. It's always been about telling people, hands off, let us rule our lives the way we want to. And I think, funnily enough, the more free women become in 2020, the more feminists seem to want to ask for our freedom to be curtailed. And I just think that's a really bad thing. It is strange. I mean, you're 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 a fair bit younger than me, I'm I'm presuming. And um, you know, there was that that brand of feminism that was around in in the nineties that was quite robust, you know, like I mean the Ladette thing. I'm not saying Ladetteism was was a form of feminism, but it certainly suggested a kind of a kind of women that wanted to 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 do things that, that men were doing, not be like men, but have the same liberties and, and the idea was not this, I suppose a lot of people call it fainting couch feminism. And like you say, there is an oddly Victorian uh, view of women that's held in that. There, were, there was a police force in Nottingham, actually, that, that were trying to address the idea of menopause in the workplace. And they, they brought out the idea that women should be able to have these kind of like emotional breakout rooms, yeah. which just sounds like the absolute apex of patrician Victorian, like, my dear, you're, you're emotional, then, then you must go to the room. You cannot... <laughs> in the public. Well, it's funny, Nottingham is where the whole hate crime idea was first trialed. They they made oh, it really? a hate crime. Oh. So yeah, don't don't go to Nottingham if you've got any any kind of sense of yourself as an independent woman because they clearly don't believe that we can manage our lives there. Wasn't um, there that old myth about Nottingham that there was three women for every one bloke and that was what <laughs> really? that was where yeah though this was this stupid male myth that men that's why all bloke stag dudes used to go there. Just, <laughs> forgetting that this simply couldn't be possible. And the, the women that were there were obviously going to want to uh, cop off with some blokes with sort of nicknames emblazoned on their T-shirts and stuff like that. That's that's what all women were knowing. They were trying to snare like some rich man from Durham or something. Well, it's funny, you know, the the, the thing that the 90s did, I mean, you know, the, the whole Spice Girls, girl power and the kind of commercialisation of feminist politics is a bit like uninteresting. But the thing that it did do, which was positive, which was it... it, it had a sense that, you know, sex and women's private lives and whether they wore miniskirts, whether they wore lipstick, whether they wore push-up bras, all these things were kind of their own business, actually, and not on, not up for discussion either by sexist men or by overbearing feminist groups. And it was a it was a kind of a brief moment of hiatus where women just got on with it for a decade, mm. actually. And then, you know, before that, the I think it's important for people to remember that the kind of nuts stuff that we see today, whether it be making misogyny a hate crime or, you know, discussions about air conditioning being sexist because women are colder than men in the office and things like that, which are real discussions that I have really had on television. Maybe that's you know, saying something about me. But, the, you know, that all came from a quite a serious movement in the 80s, which was centred around what's, what's called kind of anti-porn feminism and a, and a, a move to uh, see sorry, a move to equate words and actions. So the idea in the 80s was that because there was this sort of boom of porn um, and sexualized imagery of women in the media and in pop culture, that this had a direct link to rapes happening. 
Um, and so that's that's what we're really seeing today with the hashtag Me Too movement, which is that you can really hold up and equate on an equal level someone saying something unpleasant about a woman and someone assaulting a woman and that physical and psychological harm is interchangeable and you know that's really the the for me the main basis of what I think is wrong with contemporary feminism is it doesn't uh, treat women as being able to make distinctions between what's an idiot uh, that you need to dismiss and maybe challenge and what's something that you need help with so of course you know, you're going to need help if someone is assaulting you and they will need intervention then, but perhaps you don't need intervention of a police officer to tell a guy at a bar to step back. I wonder if, you know, one of the problems with a movement that, that did actually, you know, sort of cast fairly broad aspersions over the male brand, right? It, it wasn't a good time for men. Men's shares went plummeting. Is <laughs> um, that you're dealing with people that, they're, they're all in their lives are enmeshed with men you know what I mean they're men that they love men that care for them men that they they care for and and was that was that divisive because I remember there were polls after that where where a lot of ordinary women sort of didn't associate positive things with the term feminism mm. no I think it's it really the Me Too movement, I think, was a really good example of how class comes into feminism and why it's different. So that you, what you were talking about in terms of having different reactions to this, um, I saw it very clearly in class terms. So the uh, middle class friends I have and the sections that I work in, whether it be the media or in journalism, were all a fluster about how awful men were and how, you know, writing articles saying men have to step back, men have to step down, men have to be quiet, they have to listen to us, we are fundamentally different, you know, basically like there's this chasm between the genders that cannot be brought together um, until you atone for your sins as mankind. But the, but, you know, my, among my family, among my other friends who I grew up with, among most working class people that I knew, you know, there was no idea that the actions of one man that you might encounter or several that you might encounter would be indicative of the behavior of the whole. And the reason was because I think there's far more solidarity between the sexes in in working class social life. I mean, if you're if you're working class family, there's you know there's not the, the similar kind of tensions that there are in middle class families. It's a difficult point to talk about, and and mm. you know people get tied up in not trying to explain it. But it, there is more there is more solidarity between the genders. I mean, the way I put it is, it's unthinkable for me that you know Emily Thornbury, for example, that I am going to have any kind of solidarity or relationship or mutual feeling with a with a female like Emily Thornbury mm. or Theresa May or whoever it is. Um, that, that, that I would feel more connected to her because of our gender than I would feel connected to the lad who grew up in the block of flats beneath me, uh, in the mm. floor beneath me. I mean, it's, it's just completely misunderstanding where people's priorities lie. And the reality is that the Me Too movement came and went and it's had a lasting effect in terms of damaging uh, policy changes in workplaces and people feeling nervous around each other and the whole you can't say that culture. But in social life, I mean, I tell you, if you go to Faces in Essex, that I have mm. frequented when I was younger mm. and better looking. I mean, it, it doesn't exist there. And sometimes that's a problem, but the whole nervousness around each other doesn't exist there. And actually quite often it's, it's pleasant, it's fun, it's letting loose. And at the fundamental heart of it is this idea that, you know, Camille Pally, when I interviewed her a few years ago, talked about this, working class women are 
a force to be reckoned with. And so more mm. often than not, they're not going to will or faint or uh, tweet yeah. about it. They're going to well, suck you probably, in the mouth. They've probably given more dry slaps in their life. Than <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you, you don't want to go down a kind of essentialist route where you're saying this is what genders are like. So women are like this and men are like this, but you have to, you to, have live to do in... that in comedy, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. You've seen my act, right? I mean, my ninety <laughs> percent is like, you know what they're like, lads, you know, uh, but yeah, but that is, you know, of course. No, but, that but is comedy. informally you deal with the reality, which is that yes, these, these things exist. And I mean, I, I've got an Irish family. You can imagine what that's like in yeah. terms of women not being able to shut up. Um, and the men finding some kind of quiet corner to not be, not get involved. <laughs> so, so informally, we know about this. I think the issue is how much do you politicize it? And the problem with contemporary feminism, actually for feminism for quite a long time, is that it's, it's sought to politicize women's interpersonal relationships. So it's no longer about what do we material, what do we materially need? You know, uh, abortion rights, better childcare, better wages, whatever, you know, material things, uh, it's now become about how do you feel about your relationship with your husband? Do you feel like you're respected in your job? And, and do you feel seen in, you know, popular representation? Uh, do you, do you think that politics should be nicer if there were more women in there? It's all about how we feel and in our interpersonal relationships, which actually it's nobody's business how I relate to my husband yeah. other than my own. And, you know, maybe I choose to have a particularly uh, gender normative home life, but that doesn't mean I would, that, that's no block on my political desires to make change in the real world. So, you know, for, I've always said it doesn't matter um, how women deal with things on a personal level. You know, I really reject the personal as political idea that came out of um, feminist movements in the 60s and 70s. What matters is what change we want to see in the world. So, you know, if you want to come to me with policies about how to make my quality of life better, I'm all ears. But if you want to start talking to me about, you know, what the vibe is like in my home life and whether or not I yeah. feel oppressed by, you know, adverts telling me to shave here, there and everywhere, leave me alone. I've got better things to deal with. Okay, so just briefly interrupting the chat with Ella, just to do a quick hype. Uh, first up, as always, any new patrons, you get a shout out. We've got, we've just got the one new patron in the five pound category this week, Malcolm Daniels. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you for your support, helping the keep the podcast ad free. Because at this point, if it wasn't ad free, this would be an advert, wouldn't it? It would be me going, "Hey, have you, uh, have you considered changing broadband providers?" Um, look, one of the other benefits of uh, a Patreon thing is that you get announced stuff quicker. And there are, like I said earlier, there's a couple of live things coming up. Maybe there's going to be a What Most People Think live show and there will be certainly access that will be given to patrons that will be over and above what anybody else can get. I can't say more about that for now. And who knows, I might tour again next year and there might be uh, restricted capacities in a lot of venues so places will sell out quicker. So you may also get a 48-hour exclusive pre-sale. Just, I'm not definitely announcing that. I'm just saying that might be coming up next week. Um, this week's been called cool up, man. I've been doing stuff uh, for the book, my book, book which is coming out, available for pre-order now. Um, what, <laughs> I forgot the fucking title. Where did I go right? How the how the left lost me? And um, I'm doing a meeting, doing one of those meetings things where I'm going to talk to all the staff at the publishers because obviously most of the books they've had are from like left-leaning authors. I think it's important that I get online and just let them know that I'm not like an awful bastard. 
<laughs> you know, I don't think the right wingers should have to make that defence. But if you work in a certain part of the creative arts, it's, it's good to have reassurance, right? And those meetings, man, like a lot of stuff I'm doing online, they can feel, I don't know if you've been doing it in your job, they can feel quite real for a while, can't they? But the bit that I find difficult is is when you end it. There's no good way of ending a Zoom meeting. You're chatting, you're getting laughs, you're like, hey, I've got an audience. But at the very end, no matter what happens, you have to find that leave meeting button, don't you? You have to find the leave meeting. So you face, you you want to end on a little smile or a thumbs up, but then the last thing they always see is you looking down into the corner of the screen, don't it? Looking down like like your mum when you tell her to to put it on the HDMI one channel with using the source button. They don't know what the fuck that means. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, misogyny being associated with a fundamental, like, hatred, you know, like, that's what it used to me. When I grew up, that word was like, it was the most extreme end of uh, of sexism. Because I remember that there used to be three tiers, right? There was chauvinism, which was like the funny one, <laughs> you know, like in sitcoms or the thing that someone would get told off for, you know. Then then there was sexism, which was those those comments that you actually had to be pulled up on. And then there was misogyny, which I felt was like something deeper that we, you would associate with what, like, incels. Now, wh- why do you think it all got kind of uh, amalgamated into this this one phrase at the extreme end? Is it, I mean, is it a bit like, you know, when, when you talk about, issues with immigration and you call it racist is it like a, the same sort of inflation in language yeah i think it's just it's it's falling back on extreme extremist words without actually understanding what they mean i mean there's so much panic about extremism in politics today you know that, that politicians and talking heads endlessly go on about the scourge of extremism and they use the most extreme language to define mm. things that really aren't extreme so whether it be calling you a fascist if you say hang on I think maybe Donald Trump might have some supporters and might be worth spending a little bit time thinking about or saying you're a racist because you want to talk about the concept of borders or saying you're a misogynist because you think that it's not the end of a world and women aren't going to die in a heap on the floor if a man makes a comment to them and I think you know it is important it's not just a kind of flippant thing saying our people are being kind of illiterate and just using any old language it's because it, it, I think it's a tactic because what it says is there mm. is no there is no debate here. You know, if you call someone a misogynist, it's very hard to debate that. Whereas if you say, well, I think that's a bit off collar, sexist, then there's room to talk about yeah. it. But if you if if misogyny is leveled at you, it's a way of just saying shut up. Uh, and I think mm. it's a way of shutting down discussion and all those things with fascist, racist, xenophobic, misogynist. There's one thing calling things out when it actually happens. And that, mm. you know, the, the rate of misogyny in this country is, is very, very low. I mean, there's still underlying sexism. You could argue there's underlying sexism in the fact that the government still um, doesn't allow women to make decisions about their own bodies in relation to abortion rights. You could, mm. you could say that's sexist. But hatred towards women, where? I mean, mm. maybe the drunk that you meet on the side of the street, may, you know, maybe the odd person in life. I mean, when, you know, it is a, a thing that we, I'm open to talk about the fact that, you know, bad stuff still does happen to women. Um, unpleasant stuff still does happen to women, in, even on a low level. But misogyny being rife, being something that we have to legislate against, I don't buy it. One thing I think is under-discussed in sort of certainly in middle-class feminism is the, the effect of the degree to which the duty of care still falls on women. Because I see it in my own life around me now, the expectation that women will care for elderly relatives and, 
you know, the amount of bandwidth that that takes up in women's lives mm. seems to me a, a bigger issue than whether or not some twat at the office party will will make an offhand comment. Why why doesn't that get as much coverage? Because I, I, with the women I speak to, that especially in middle age, that is the biggest single thing that makes their life worse. For me, it's it's four words: the gender pay gap. That the gender pay gap and the obsession with it has skewed the whole discussion on women's role um, in society and women's role in work, because the argument around the gender pay gap goes is basically led by middle and upper class women who want a bigger salary. And we saw that in relation to the BBC pay scandal, um, talking about the fact that, you know, if only we can have more female CEOs, then you know, women's role in society will be fixed. We'll, it will be perfect. Mm. And there's very little discussion given to the fact that uh, on an informal basis, never mind the CEOs and how many women are in Westminster, how many women are in F- Forbes 30 under 30 and things that no, the average woman yeah. has no relation to, is that women are still the chief nose wipers, the, you know, the ones who are going to leave their job to bring their son or daughter to the doctor at last minute, are still, as you say, the primary caregivers. And there is one fundamental way in which that could change. And that is, uh, and maybe you'll disagree with this, but this is where my kind of uh, left-wing politics comes in, is a free, on-demand, high-quality 24-hour childcare provision by the state. You know, give women the ability to, and and men, give families the ability to have a service that they can lean on, so that in particular women can be as free as men to uh, fulfil their job requirements to follow careers. I mean, in relation to the BBC scandal, this mm. I couldn't quite believe how gross some of it was um, particularly um, in the uh, last few weeks when the uh, EHRC investigation found out that there was you know nothing illegal had happened in relation to uh, pay scandals at the BBC and there was mass fury among all these presenters who were really upset that their kind of telephone book length uh, pay salaries weren't quite long enough Um, and no one talked about the fact that for example someone like Carrie Grace who sure maybe she did get paid differently to the guy alongside she was working at maybe that was wrong but no one talks about the fact that she's getting hundreds of thousands or whatever it is and the woman who cleans her office and Mm. and works just as long just as hard I mean I read about this um, for Spikes and said you know I've seen the way presenters in the BBC sling coffee around in mugs and it's hard getting that out of a carpet yeah. and gets paid a fraction of it. So if we're really talking about what women need um, in terms of to, to alleviate their responsibility as the primary caregivers, please let's not punt around about, you know, pay for the higher echelons of society and actually talk about what could really free women's time up. You mentioned there the EHRC, uh, the Equality and Human Rights Commission. There was a bit of a fury recently in that one of the appointments, uh, somebody who had uh, oversight over issues of uh, feminism and gender equality, she perhaps seemed to be coming from a strand of feminism or a view of women that was perhaps closer to yours. Can you just characterise her, or maybe I'm completely off on that, but could you just characterise what it was that she said and why it caused a fuss? Yeah, um, it was Jess Butcher, who is I had on a panel um, at the Battle of Ideas Festival um, a number of years ago, and we've worked with her several times. And she is a very impressive woman who's uh, made it for herself in the realm of tech and things that I don't understand. Um, and, you know, has a huge amount of um, experience behind her in the 
world of business and in women in business has been involved in that whole kind of politics for quite a long time. And she actually had a, she had a, I'm putting words in her mouth now, but she told me about this kind of transition that she went through where, you know, she was talking to all these women in business, women in finance, all these kind of groups and realized that she didn't agree with the kind of victim feminism coming out of it, that she, that she, especially around the hashtag me too movement suddenly realized that actually this, uh, narrative about women being weak didn't fit her experience, didn't fit most women's experience, and was a, a narrative that was being shaped by a very small number of women to define the futures of uh, the population of women. And there is absolutely no question that Jess Butcher um, or, or you know, me or anyone who has this point of point of view wants to send women back into the kitchen, wants to shackle um, our sisters to the kitchen sink. I mean, we are, it is not a regressive point of view to challenge received wisdom mm. around contemporary feminism. In fact, I think what she believes in, and it's not just because I agree with her, yeah. is, is far more radical in terms of the prospects of changing women's lives um, than any of this kind of wet, soft crap that you get out of these kind of uh, campaign groups and organisations that seek to talk about women and girls in really nice terms, but never actually come up with the goods about how to change women's quality of life. So the intolerance around um, Jess's appointment is indicative of how, of the one of the biggest problems in relation to contemporary feminism, which is the sort of censorship of opposing ideas. So I won't go through the list of stuff I've been called um, mm. hand, you know, or maybe I will, a handmaiden of the alt right. You know, someone who's got internalized misogyny, and that was the politer stuff by mm. by people who call themselves feminists, but because I don't adhere to um, the kind of what's the kind of political line um, agreed by them on how women should think. And so, uh, you know, what I'd say about Jess is that she, she, you know, whatever about her appointment, if more women with a bit of a broader mind and a bit of a sense of what freedom actually means gets into positions of power where stuff can change, I think that's no bad thing. I, I saw you on Politics Live this week and you had a bit of a ding dong with Siobhan McDonough, the mm. Labour MP for Mitchell, more than my old constituency. She's been there a while. And, and and the argument they had, so first up, let's establish what your point was with that you were in favour of cutting the uh, the foreign aid budget from 0.7%. You just quickly give us your reasons why that was. Yeah, I've just written an article for Spiked on it this morning, actually. Um, the, the problem with international aid, it links to what we've been talking about in relation to feminism, uh, is that one, it never comes with no strings attached. So the idea that it's just, you know, mm. British philanthropy, really nice charity, kind of giving Afghani girls a meal and 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 setting them on their way off to school is is crap. It's not that. Um, a third of it goes to the UN and the World Bank for their various projects, and the other, the remaining sort of two thirds goes to uh, individual countries. What's called bilateral aid. It's mm. not the poorest countries. It's the countries that the UK deems are in line with our interests. I mean, Theresa May said a number of years ago when she was prime minister, I remember that, it seems like a million yeah. years ago, um, that the she would only recommit to the 0.7% pledge if it tied in with our security interests, our national interests. So you know, it's all to do with Western influence. So on a, on a basis that I'm anti-Western intervention, I'm against it. But the, the thing in relation to women and girls, and this is where Siobhan started speaking in a pitch that only dogs can hear because she was so upset with me, <laughs> is that you know, I said that there, that mealy-mouthed ideas about educating women and girls wasn't what international aid was about. She said, how can you be against 
educating women and girls. This is what what kind of caught caught me was like, why why did she have an expectation? This is what bugs me on the left is that that there's a set of characteristics that women have that that are on on a superficial level caring. But that seems to me to be like, really reductive and, and sexist yeah it is and you know if she knew anything about i mean i don't want to just pick on siobhan but there because lots of people seem to be ignorant about this knew anything about what that education entails it's it's not just like oh let's teach you maths and english and set you on your way yeah. i mean the un um last year on world population day the un released a campaign called thriving together which was about educating women and girls in order to stem population growth so the whole idea is that you educate women and girls so that they won't have kids so that these girls in Ghana and Sierra Leone will stop having babies and so that the world will be less populated and I mean Jesus if women's freedom yeah. and women's education is tied up with a promise that there's less black babies in the world I don't want to have anything to do with it and I think it's that kind of it's the ignorance around what these things actually mean you can talk in platitudes about being pro-education of women and girls everyone sensible is pro-education for women and girls and by the way I hate the phrase women and girls pick one and talk about them campaigns always use it um but what it, what does that actually mean what is what is the actual detail of what's happening on the ground and when you get down to that you see that it's more often than not especially into intent especially in relation to international aid yeah. it's it's wanting but does i mean i just her shock it rem, do you know it reminded me of when i first started talking about being right of center and 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 being a comedian it was just that i I don't understand like Mm. if you're if you're you know if we share you know ovaries we have ovaries then then you must be um in line with a set of values that are are kind of sort of pastoral in a way but so it sets aside two there's two expectations there is that there's a singular idea of how you care for people and then th- there's also that you have to be on that, like, because you're a woman, you couldn't, it's say even if your reasons for um, not liking the international aid budget were selfish, right? Just say that they were. You're allowed <laughs> to be like that. You're allowed to feel that way. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you sort of got to always be thinking about the world's hungry babies. You might be thinking, you know, and do, do you find that more on the, on the left, perhaps? Um, well, it, part of the problem is that particularly the British left, in some ways, left in America although that's different but particularly the British left I find it very hard to see any kind of resemblance of what I think left-wing values are and should be so you know prioritization of workers interests commitment to freedom a sort of healthy anti-state position Uh, all these things have been warped over decades of mainly the left being involved too heavily in the Labour Party um, and consistently selling out the working class. And so, at the, you know, really what resembles the British left at the moment is a handful of commentators, you know, a few teenagers in momentum um, and and not and not much else. You know, all, all the old kind of hack left wingers that I know still carry on and have their meetings and, you know, do their thing. But they're sort of prominent. What, what gets to speak as the voice of the British left has really no resemblance with what I understand to be left wing politics. Mm. I mean, Claire Fox, who I work with, um, director of the Academy of Ideas, when she often gets questions along these lines, as I do. And she's got this really great line that I always steal which is you know uh, politics has moved but I haven't which is you know the idea that actually Mm. my views and my principles whether it be in relation to women's freedom or left-wing politics 
have have never really changed. What's changed is the world around me. And so, you know, if you take, for example, free speech, I mean, it's just, I just can't understand why it, it, that has now become a sort of synonymous with a, a, a far right value. Um, when just logic tells me that this is something that historically the left has always argued for and in the future should al- should always champion. Do you think, and, and you know, I, I will invoke what could arguably be a sexist trope here. Like, you know, when you're a, a, a boy growing up, you get loads of shit, right? You know, you get loads of shit of each other. You know, women, girls can kind of make life hard for each other in different ways, but... It did, you know, getting the stick, I mean, you must have grown a thicker skin now, but mm. how, how was it initially when you first started appearing on shows and you were taking this angle on, on women that was seen as contrarian? How, did, it, did it affect your mental health? Did you, did you find it hard? Well, it's funny you say growing up. I mean, the, the thing I've always thought that no one really talks about is that boys might, you know, rough each other up and actually batter each other. Yeah. But particularly, there's nothing more terrifying than a teenage girl. I mean, teenage girls... Agreed. I used to be a teacher. <laughs> ability for emotional manipulation and psychological warfare is something to behold. Um, yeah. And and fair play to them. But so the idea that there's that women are kind of mentally weaker than men. I've actually never bought because I always thought, God, I know the girls I grew up with and they are tenacious and have a real sense of themselves. Of course, that's not true for everyone, but sort of crudely and generally speaking. So when I first started encountering um, some of this stuff, I mean, obviously it hurts um, and it still hurts. I mean, I've just written an article for The Telegraph about Sia's uh, new film, which really doesn't look that good, called Music, which is about an autistic um, half-sister um, who is very into music and mm. she's chosen to put uh, to cast Maddie Ziegler who's not autistic um, as the actress to play the autistic girl and she's done lots of other things like been involved with some kind of some um, autistic charities that are not great and she said mm. some stupid stuff but I just wrote this article saying okay whatever about Sia you know maybe we shouldn't um, make a precedent that only actors that fit the identity of the character can play that character. So like, you know, men should be able to play women, women should be able to be men, whatever. Let's just, let's just defend artistic freedom here. And I have had wall to wall for about 72 hours now, um, hatred on Twitter about how I'm able-bodied an enemy of, you know, the autistic community and all this kind of stuff. And it's horrible. It's really horrible not least because a member of my family is autistic and we love him. And, it, you know, the, I'm so hurt by the idea that anyone think, would think that. Yeah. But you've got to, this is kind of my rule that I try and tell people um, who ask me about this, is that you've got to always differentiate your personal feelings from some, about something from your political conviction. Mm. So nothing has changed about my political conviction in that article. Nothing has ever changed about my political vi- conviction about women's freedom. I've never wavered on that issue. Um, even if I have gone home and thought, oh God, that Kate Smith wait really is mean and I don't like her. And, you know, in fact, we, I think, I'm pretty sure she's elbowed me on the streets of Hackney a few times because we live <laughs> near each other. Um, and you might personally think, yeah. right, I'm really upset about this, but politics is, is different. And so you just got to get it together, get it, get a grip. And if you really care about something, mm. it doesn't matter how much you might cry about it at home or whinge to my husband and say, oh, I wish people wouldn't say these mean things about me. You're never going to change anything unless you've got a bit of metal about you. And so uh, whether it means growing a thick skin or whether it means just being able to put on a public face, 
it's a skill you've got to learn. I mean, handmaiden of the the alt right. I mean, I do think that there's something slightly sexist in that they've had to pick a trope which is very antiquated female in a way, almost like some kind of farm wench thing. They couldn't like they, they. It was a very gendered role that they picked. Yeah. Oh, and this was you know this is a former Guardian columnist who's in the news a lot at the yeah. moment for standing up against. Uh, bullying in her own workplace and I won't name any names but yeah so and so you do think all right it's one rule for you and it's another rule for others and I think that's that's part of the problem is that especially in relation to feminism Mm. there's so much hand-wringing about what kind of language affects women how you've got to phrase things differently and then the minute you say I I politically disagree with what Mm. you're saying and I think maybe you should say it this way they're like which you know yeah which. create a pylon get her out of here and you think hang on what about my mental health i mean christ yeah yeah but you're the- not a real woman you know <laughs> like they go for all the things that they're not supposed to say i mean it was like with yeah. biden uh when when he someone said that they were planning to vote trump and they said well you're, you ain't black you know mm. like it's so against mm. the core principles um, on the other hand do you, do you find that sometimes because you know what it's like there are a lot of blokes particularly those on the right that, that are looking for uh female voices that question feminism do you, do you find that you you find a lot of blokes that you're kind of like their pinup of yeah she gets it women are shit and like they're missing the point as well do you have to deal with sift out some of that yeah i really i have for for a number of years had a problem with people just assuming that you're in within the kind of men's rights activism group or that you want to use terms like feminazis or things yeah. like that. <laughs> Let me talk about extremism. Um, and, and, you know, I'm the, I've got a tiny bit of sympathy for that simply because so much of what contemporary feminism talks about is so insulting and really rage inducing, you know, like mm. talking to someone like my father who, uh, told me about this horrendous experience he had where he was walking down the road he's a builder um in all his gear and there was a woman walking towards him with a very revealing gym outfit on and before they even kind of got close to each other she went like sucked her teeth and was like oh you disgusting man looking at me and he was like I wasn't looking at you Uh I wasn't and you know that kind of the assumption among many people that there is a kind of evil among men um that has to be shamed is I can understand why that would really upset you you know especially a 56 year old man who's just going about his business but the but the problem is that I think you know, again, coming back to where you turn personal feelings into kind of political action, then moving into the problem I have with the men's rights activism is that it's pretty much a mirror image of contemporary feminism because it's all about victim politics. Yes, it's got some serious issues at the heart of that, you know, around childcare and and rights in terms of who gets kids and stuff like that, which is up for debate and I think should be talked about. But it's framed in this kind of, oh, women think they have it hard. Well, we've got it worse. And you just think, ugh masculinity has become you know it's now toxic masculinity obviously there are some negative things about being macho one of them being that you don't talk about your feelings and then at some point in your life you're going to have a blowout and either buy a car you can't um afford or do something worse to yourself but um (laughs) but the but the idea of masculinity of of something you know the qualities in that that are positive you know strength being reliable that don't it's not 
saying that those are good aren't saying that women can't be them but there's a ju- you know it's a running joke in my family that I am constantly trying to outman my husband because I you know I especially when I go working for him he's a tree surgeon I'm breaking my neck to try and be better than him even though he's the skilled person <laughs> be there better on time lift heavier things you know because it's attractive to me the idea you know that some aspects of masculinity are attractive to me and so when you kind of pathologize it as as the whole thing is toxic and any any man that kind of takes pride in the in some maybe you call them more traditional aspects of mm. his gender role is is what warped is anti-woman um you end up basically making men feel like shit and and who wants that my whole argument with the the discussion around gender mm. is that you should be working towards a position of lifting both people into into freedom that's why you lift you know the whole argument of kind of pushing men down so women can speak is just so wrong it's about lifting both people up um, and both both sides up because more often than not we don't act separately we don't have separate lives men and women's uh individual lives intertwine at every aspect at all times and that's a positive thing no that was so beautifully put Ella I think that's you know got a great point to kind of uh, bring it in a bit in terms of um in terms of stuff that you produce and books and stuff is there is there stuff that we should be looking for I mean obviously your book is still out there uh, you could tell tell us the title of that again it's what women want fun freedom and an end to feminism I mean it's more like a pamphlet it's very thin so you'll read it in an afternoon um well but, um, I don't know like if listeners to to this their wives have got very very feminist it could be like a fun secret Santa see what yeah, happens yeah. When they, Christmas dinner stick this in the stocking uh, yeah, it's, it's pink like, and jazzy looking so you know it won't be until they're on about page five that they'll understand the insult you've leveled at them well, the, the great thing is like the, the first bit of the title sounds like it what, what women want brilliant you know and then they get an, an end to end to feminism <laughs> That's it. you can base that turkey yourself Phil <laughs> And uh, in terms of like your, your, your journalism, is there, is there other stuff that we should be looking out for? Well, one thing that people might be interested in is um, I'm part of a, a female-led, uh, not intentionally, but there you go, coalition of me and a woman called Felon Glenn, um, who are two women that get really annoyed at all this kind of stuff. And we created a production company called Lobster Films because we're both ginger. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> we did a documentary on feminism where we interviewed lots of interesting feminists um and lots of interesting normal women who had views on feminism um it was called the f word and it's out on youtube and yeah it's it's a kind of look at all the stuff that we've been talking about uh, and asking what feminism really actually does for women so lobster films might be one for people to check out So that was the chat with uh, Ella Whelan there. I hope you enjoyed that. You know, I think if you've been, you know, the feminism that you're getting through kind of mainstream media, political discussion shows is all coming from one angle. I think she makes a very interesting uh, counterpoint to some of that. Uh, we just got a couple of letters this week. Um, this is a letter from, I don't know, I'm supposed to do the name here, but let's read the letter from uh, uh, Mrs. W. Um, there's an old man. Uh, so she's talking about that there was an advert that was on in, in Germany, and it was kind of a way of trying to encourage them to stay at home. And she said, there's an old man who looks like a war veteran sitting and talking about what he did in the Corona War. And it cuts to him as a young man and says something along the lines of, we did nothing. We stay- I've got to do the accent. Um, we did nothing. We stayed at home and sat on our asses on the sofa. 
And it shows him lying around in the dark room watching TV, looking bored out of his mind. Uh, it's quite clever, but I was upset because it's such a negative message. I'm worried about all the kids that age who have lost time at school, work experience, the chance to start a career, party with their friends, and telling them the best they can hope for is to sit around by themselves in the dark seems sad and dangerous to me. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I've seen adverts, and, and certainly when lockdown started, this idea that you go, well, guys, why are you moaning? You just got to sit and watch box sets. Oh, well, everyone's got Netflix, have they? <laughs> you know, just sit in your garden. Everyone's got gardens, have they? You know, some people got fucking cramped, difficult lives. And look at these, look, it comes to something when the Germans have got a better message on humour than us. I go, look, I, it comes from a smug fucking sort of centrist view on lockdown that all people have got, like, there's no consequence to it. You know, let's cut to the next bit of that old man just sitting on his ass watching the sofa. Let's just, the next bit where he's fucking, like, self-harming. <laughs> Because he can't, because he can't watch any more of what the equivalent German equivalent of Dad's Army is. <laughs> is there a German equivalent of Dad's? It'd be a much darker program, wouldn't it? It'd be much more of a somber reflection on the roles that we played. This is a letter from. Uh, this is I like. This is completely off topic. Remember, you can email me about anything you want me to discuss, or what most people think. UK at gmail.com. And sometimes in the letters, I like them to be weird. This one is saying, uh, it's from Gary and Bogner Regis, and he's quite a uh, quite a long email. But basically the point of it, he's saying about this series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He just says there's no jeopardy in it. And because the fact they're not um, they're not in the rainforest, there's no rain, it's just like, what is the fucking point of it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing about this series of uh, I'm a Celebrity is that they've almost got more liberty than we have. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, the point about that programme was that they were, you know, oh, look at them, you know, they're celebrities, but look, they've been brought down a peg or two. Oh, look at him eating a kangaroo bollock, eh? Oh, yeah, have some of that. You just got rained on. <laughs> that sleeping bag's not going to dry easy. Now, you know what I mean? They got they got their meals, you know what I mean? They're, they're basically like on group furlough, aren't they? They're getting paid like decent money for doing... <laughs> they're getting paid decent money for doing fuck all, but that, they can meet in more than a group of six. Okay, so that is pretty much the end of the podcast for this week. We just um, do a quick reviews here. here do a, well, a, re- a review this week. We had one new review. If you leave me a five-star review on the iTunes website, I will definitely read it out. I'll definitely read it out. It looks like I've only got one new one this week, which is fine. So fine. So fine. Uh, this is from Emerald M.E. Webb. Hang on. I read this one out last week. Oh, dear. Well, that's embarrassing. So there were no... No new uh, reviews this week, uh, which is, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, obviously last week, uh, you know, solo episode, 52 minutes and I was like, I started to sound like, you know, when your mum would just like self-pity herself. I just, no, I just, don't mind me, don't mind me. I'm just slaving over here in hot stove, keeping the house clean. Everyone just comes in and out, treats this place like a hotel. But um, look, I know, I know people have, <laughs> I'm clearly rattled by this, but the other thing that's rattled me is as we're talking, I've just, uh, they've announced the tiers and the tier that I'm in, is uh, tier two, and I was thinking it was going to be in tier one. Fucking pricks. I mean, almost like nowhere is in tier one. Nowhere. Cornwall. Do you know what I mean? A few fucking farmers and fucking weird pagans and fucking, like, I think it's 700,000 people in the whole country are in tier one. Do they, do they not want, do they not want to have a, an economy anymore? Is, is economy now like this outdated idea 
like soda streams. Do you remember, like, we was all really into it, and they were like, do you know what, actually, we don't need an economy, do you know what I mean? We don't need to have a life or go to the pub or bars or meet people and just, you know what, you carry on with your week. I'm just going to carry on moaning here. And I tell you what, you know, just go out and meet in groups. Oh, I can't meet people in, indoors. What, in my fucking house? Yeah, I tell you what, government, if you, want, if you want to tell me what I can do in my house, then let's have a bit of help with the mortgage payment. Absolutely. Okay, 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 okay.